Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 719 for March 19th, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Barb Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth. Not a regular episode number. This is going to be another one of what he likes to call a tidbit, right? This yeah. is tidbit three of why? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's related. It's very, very PBS related, but it's just, it's not part of our story. It's not, it, it's... It's a more philosophical discussion inspired by a news item, which definitely does not meet our evergreen definition for programming by stealth. Um, right. And it's kind of also your idea. Well, sort of. I used... My, my question inspired your tidbit. Yes, exactly. I pinged off your question um, to answer way different things than probably what you were actually asking me about. But we, we'll get to the detail of your question too. So... What this all boils down to is the fact that we have been happily using a package manager to suck in other people's code into our work. It's great, right? We have jQuery. Well, we haven't been pulling jQuery, but we've been pulling in um, Moment.js. We've been pulling in cool stuff. And uh, that's actually not a risk-free behavior. But it's also not risk-free not to do it. It's kind of... We need to think about this. So... If you choose to bring someone else's code into your code, you are accepting risk. It's not zero risk. I mean, you can do it in such a way that it's not it's not like insane risk, but it's not zero risk. And you might assume, therefore, that if it's risky to do something, it's safe to not do it. But it's actually different risky not to reach for other people's <laughs> code. It's just you've swapped one risk for another risk. And that's just sort of I thought that was a cool thing to talk about. Is, are you saying we're damned if we do and damned if we don't? No. What I'm saying is both extremes are wrong. So what we have okay. to do is the really hard thing of make a reasoned decision in the gray area in the middle. And as opposed to me being able to give you a set of rules that says this is the input and this is the output, what I'm going to, the best I can do is give you some advice and guidance and to make a promise to you. You will, make, you will get it wrong. I have gotten it wrong. I have been bitten. We will all be bitten. We are all human. Okay. We all make mistakes. It's grand. The one thing I would suggest is it's nice to learn from them if you can, but they'll happen. So I'm not sure I know what you mean by how is it a mistake? Well, what I, is the mistake that we'll be making? Maybe you're going to get into well, that. Well, I have chosen to depend heavily on packages that then got abandoned the week later and I had to rewrite it all. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So I, I, I like where you're going with this because I've I've... Like right now, I could still use my beloved Clarify because technically it still works, but it was abandoned two years ago. So I stopped using it as soon as it was abandoned. I was like, nope, can't do it. Yeah, because it's going to blow up in your face sometime. And if you smell like you're abandoning something, I'm going to move on probably. I, I, would, I would argue that is an extremely good way to treat the modern digital world. Very good way. Okay. So at the end of the day, this is all going to be a bit hand-waving because I can't just give you a, here is an algorithm and you will be perfect because it's a judgment call. And the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to get better at making the judgment call. And I'm going to offer you some questions to ask yourself to help you make the judgment call. But at the end of the day, it's a judgment call and you're going to have no experience and you're going to find it really hard. And then you're going to develop experience and it's going to be less hard. But it's a learning curve forever. You're, you're never going to have all the answers. Okay. So I'm actually going to pull us right, right, right back. And I'm going to ask a very fundamental question. Since using other people's code brings risk into our code, 
why use other people's code at all? Well, the single most obvious answer is to save resources, which if you're in a cynical kind of mood, because I'm a lazy sod, or if you're in a thoughtful kind of mood, um, it's efficient, right? It, the more Don't reinvent the wheel? Exactly. It, like, what, the reason we want to program is to, to fix problems we have, right? Something, the computer could do something for us and it's not. And what we're trying to do is different to what everyone else has tried to do. So we need to make it do it by writing our own code. Well, you know, to to create the universe from scratch, or to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe, was the, the famous Sagan quote. <laughs> and that kind of applies to code too. So if you spend all of your time building everything up from first principles, then by the time, you know, a week has gone by and you haven't achieved anything yet, and in fact, you'll probably never get to the stuff you really needed to get done. So how do you get to the true heavy lifting if you never leverage other people's work? So okay. that is the most obvious reason is because it's just way more efficient to take other people's wheels instead of reinventing every wheel yourself. But it, I would actually say that it's it's actually worse than that because it's not just about not getting stuff done. It's if you do succeed, right? You have done all of this extra work. You have reinvented the wheel. You're now very proud of yourself. Ta-da, a wheel. Well, mm-hmm. if you're not an expert on whatever it is, the wheel you reinvented, you probably did it wrong. Because I don't know if you're familiar with one of my favorite insights. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. When no, you, I haven't heard of that. So the more you don't know, the more confident you are that you do know it. Because you don't know enough to know <laughs> what you don't know. So it is much easier to, to be brazenly confident about something you only half understand. Hmm. Because what happens then is you start to actually understand the complexity and you realise you have a lot to learn. And so it's sort of like this, but your confidence goes right up and then you learn enough to know that, oh dear, this is way more complicated. And you plummet down into Valley of Despair and then you climb back out into the peak of wisdom. But the Dunning-Kruger effect is responsible for a lot of very bad things. And it's really easy to fall into it because you don't know what you don't know. And so you'll just make mistakes. You get it wrong. So, and while it's annoying to get things wrong in a bug sense, a lot of your code touches other things. So if you get it wrong, you probably just made a security vulnerability and gotten yourself onto the security bits segment. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Where somebody who did worked on this one thing to get this one thing right may have spent all of the time appropriate to make sure it's secure. Yeah. They may or may not have. Yeah. Now, it's really obvious that you should not write your own encryption algorithm or you should r- not write your own hashing code, right? You know, someone else has already implemented AES-256. Don't go read the AES-256 spec and write it yourself. Someone has already implemented SHA-1. Don't rewrite the SHA-1 hash. That's obvious. But there's lots of risk elsewhere too. Like every time you sanitize user input, you're relying on having a really good regular expression for detecting what is or isn't a valid email address or really good code for detecting what is or isn't a shell escape sequence. If you're using a library that has been written by 100 people that is 10 years old and has all the rough edges beaten off, I promise you there are edge cases in there you haven't thought of. Yeah, 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 yeah. So user sanitation, really dangerous. But if your code touches the network, 
Or touch of the file system. Well, that's another security vulnerability waiting to happen, right? If you're accepting network connections and you're not properly dealing with them, then that leaves you open to all sorts of potential abuses. So even if you're not doing the really obviously risky stuff, there's actually, like, if your app interacts with the world, well, you best be careful that your interaction points are actually doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And the best way to do that is to rely on someone else's code that implements a well-known standard properly. Can I ask kind of a, a little bit of a sideways sure. question here? Um, in the case of security, it would be obvious to me that I would have somebody else, you know, or I would rely on a well-known library for user sanitation, for example. But you've talked a lot about the open source library you created called join.js hmm. that allows you to do the joining of, of terms. We've played around with that quite a bit. I can't picture it occurring to me that that would exist. It would save me a lot of time to just use join.js rather than writing it myself if I needed that kind of code, but it would never occur to me that someone had already written it. And I, I, do you just get to a to a function and go, man, I could write that, but I bet somebody else has written it. You just have a sense, or do you always search to see if somebody else has done it first, or do you weigh how much time would it take me to do it versus search? The answer or is, is the answer yes. yes and. <laughs> the answer is okay. yes and to all of that. Uh, and in fact, later on, I actually have a list of questions, but that, that is definitely part of it, right? You develop a bit of a spidey sense of, hang on a sec, this isn't me specific. Someone must have done this, right? Because like I say, okay. you're trying to write programs to solve things other people haven't solved already because you're, you know, it's your thing. But in the process of doing that, if you meet a problem that you're like, hang on, everyone must have solved this before, then there probably is something out there. And... Thanks to the joy of places like Stack Overflow, a lot of the times you just pop it into Google and you get the answer. And someone will say, well, actually, you'll find that the underscore, the underscore JS library or the Lodash library implemented this perfectly. It's called blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, okay, great. You go read the manual. And then the manual describes it and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, okay, great. And sometimes, like with my joiner library, I was convinced there would be a good one out there that did everything I wanted. And it's like, no, there isn't. Okay, I guess I will scratch my own itch, but I'll scratch it once, and I'll reuse my own and code. scratch it for everybody else, too. And and for <laughs> me, right? Sorry, is it joiner.js? And I've been calling it join. H, uh, I th- did I call it HJN for human joiner? I think. It's on my GitHub anyway. Um, yeah, go to Bart's GitHub. <laughs> I think I called it HJN for human joiner. Um, okay. But yeah, you you do kind of develop a bit of a spidey sense of someone probably did this already. Okay. Or at least I hope they did. Or I expect they might have. Yeah, or hope they did. Yeah, hope they did is usually what it is because you're looking at it going, oh God, that seems like a lot of work. (laughs) There it is. It's human-join. Oh, that's very, very unlike me to not give it a cryptic name. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to go fix that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to give it a really obscure name. So okay, I would say a good time to think about using someone else's code is if you're doing some sort of security thing, if you just don't have the capability to do it yourself because it needs expertise in something, right? The classic example is I needed to use JavaScript to interact with an Excel file. I am not learning Microsoft's uh, binary-based file system for Excel. I'm sorry, I'm just not going there. So that's the case of someone else solved this problem. I ain't going to piggyback so much on their work. 
And then there's the plain old efficiency. Yes, I could reinvent this wheel, but I could probably spend that energy doing something more useful. So I should take the wheel given to me and spend my time doing something no one else has done before. So security, capability and efficiency are the three reasons I would argue that you should consider using other people's code. Which then leads to the next obvious question. Well, what could possibly go wrong? This sounds brilliant, Bart. You know, reuse all the code. It's fantastic. Reuse it all. Well, yeah, okay, but hang on a second. You know, libraries are not magic. They're other people's code. Other people. And people... Oh, they're not magic? No. People, I'm afraid to say, make mistakes all the time. So... You know, anyone can type some glop into their favorite code editor, push it to GitHub, give it a few choice keywords, publish it to NPM, and then get on social media and spread it to the world. It does not mean it's any better than something you threw together in an afternoon. Just because it's an NPM, I put human joiner into NPM. I could be an idiot. Anyone can put stuff into NPM. Even I can't. Right? It's it's not magic. So okay. You know, and the big danger, of course, is that there are people who mean really well, but who don't know what they don't know. So basically, none of us have a monopoly on being flawed humans. So there is a lot of flawed code out there. So we need to be careful. We need to look before we leap. So. Let us imagine that we have a superpower. We can instantly tell whether or not code is rubbish, right? We just, we just have the superpower, right? We can look at a library and we just instantly know whether it's good or bad. So that means we're safe, right? Well, no, just because the, we, the library was written by people who mean really well, they're not inept, they're very skilled, and they know their stuff, and they wrote this library with the best will in the world. Even then, they're going to have made mistakes, because they're still human. So every library, even one written by the absolute expert in the topic, will have bugs in it. And So to dig in there, though, um, that's not any different than software written by humans who work for Microsoft. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Um, All software. I guess the point I'm driving at is, even if you assume that the people writing the software know absolutely everything about the RC4 algorithm, Mm -hmm. they can still make mistakes. So it's not just incompetent people publishing stuff. The most competent people in the world will still make mistakes. Right. And then there's a second problem, which is that the world does not stand still. So you can have code that works fantastic today, and it could become catastrophically insecure by morning. Because protocols, you could perfectly implement a protocol that has a flaw in the protocol design. This has happened with the PDF protocol more times than you can shake a stick at. So you could have a perfect PDF library that follows Adobe spec to the letter, and Adobe wake up one morning and realize that their spec is wrong and is massively insecure. And yes, this has happened many times over the years. We've talked about a lot on security bits. And everyone who wrote a PDF parser has to rewrite their parser because the rules have just changed. Right. Would would you put log4j in the same kind of category? I would actually, yeah, because the the log4j implemented a terrible idea perfectly. <laughs> right, it absolutely it was working as designed when it was catastrophically insecure. 
Okay. And then someone but noticed. We didn't know it yesterday and we know it today. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And they had to change how it works to make it not be catastrophically insecure because it was just badly designed. So, you know, protocols get updated, computers get faster, computers develop new capabilities, attackers figure out things we didn't know were even conceivably possible. Basically, code is like a garden. It has to be tended. So you don't want a library that's correct today. You want a library that someone is gardening actively. Because otherwise your code goes out of date along with their code. Because you've just imported it into yours. So companies and people come and go. Their priorities change. So code will get abandoned. It is going to happen. And if you have code with one passionate maintainer, well, that's the most likely to go wrong. But it really could happen to any library. And sometimes what happens is it gets abandoned, half the planet depends on it, and all of a sudden people are like, oh wow, no one's looking after this and it's really important to us all, and then a few people get cranky enough, the project gets revived, and off you go again. Happen, you know, and these things come and go. So, you know, we have to bear in mind that our libraries may need to change over time. So using other people's code is, a, is an ongoing thing we have to keep in mind it's not just something we do once we have to sort of maintain it now so that's that's a bit of work uh, and so far i have been assuming good intentions you know people who don't know what they don't know releasing stuff that really they shouldn't release but they don't know people trying their absolute best to write the most perfect code possible being human people moving on abandoning stuff because it's just they can't contribute to this anymore all of that is utterly benign, but it happens. But it's it's worse than that. Some people are just nasty. This is a world in which malice is a thing. So people are out there to exploit others to make a quick book, and it just sucks, but it's true. So a malicious, a naive malicious person could write some evil code and just publish it onto GitHub or whatever and hope that someone accidentally infects themselves, sort of like a Trojan, right? Sort of hope that someone will install it. But in reality, that doesn't really work very well as an attack vector because imagine you go and you search NPM and you get two possible answers for the thing you're trying to do. One of those answers has 500,000 monthly downloads a 10-year version history, 100,000 pins or likes, depending on the platform, um, and, you know, another, the other result was released last week, has 50 downloads in total and one contributor. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> right? There are your two search results. Which of those are you going to pick? Right? You're obviously going to steal the one with all that history. So for a malicious person to actually... Steal. Oh, right. Okay. So for a malicious person to actually succeed at their evilness, they are out to steal other code's good reputation. They want to mm. hijack the reputation someone else has earned in order to get bad stuff. And there are a bunch of different tactics, but the ones that I notice the most are confusion, hijacking, buyout, and sabotage. So confusion, basically, name your package similar to a real one. Right? There is jQuery. Name your package jQuery.js or JSQuery or jQuery spelt slightly wrong. Right? You have all of these approaches or jQuery.com or you know, just name it like jQuery but not exactly jQuery and hope that people don't notice. Uh, 
Or if it's, you know, maybe someone stupidly called their library XK past WD, try XWK past D or something, right? Just okay. you know, tweak the letters about a bit. Typo, you know, typo squatting is a form of confusion. So that is definitely a technique that is used a lot. You know, just make your thing look like a famous thing and hope people get the wrong one. The other one is just to hijack a famous thing, right? Something has earned a really good reputation. You hack one of the developer's machines, you get their private SSH key. Ta-da, I now have the keys to the Git kingdom. If you're clever, you'll push a very, very subtle commit that puts a subtle vulnerability in. If you're stupid, you'll just hack the whole thing to be Jesus and everyone will notice in five minutes and that'll be the end of that. But if you, you know, if you can succeed in stealing someone's credentials and being subtle enough in your maliciousness, you could get away with it for quite some time. Another common approach is to throw money at the problem. So you're a bad guy and you want to get your malware out there. Let's go with bad person because women can be bad too. I I approve. Yes, I approve. (laughs) Um... One way you can achieve this is simply to look for a developer who's gotten disgruntled and cranky and say, tell you what, I'll buy your project. There are cranky people out there because we all get burned out. This is actually a real issue in Firefox plugins of all places. There's been a few high-profile ones have been taken over. Now, in this case, not for malware, for adware. But basically, you had a developer who'd spent ages writing a plugin people loved, and then it was just bought by someone who filled it with ads. Well, you could pull the same trick with an NPM repository. (laughs) So, you know, you can just throw money at the problem and just buy someone's reputation. It won't last long, but if you do it often enough, I guess it can be enough to get your malware out there. And then the other thing is sometimes people just sabotage things. Like, this is actually what happened in the example that you gave. Sometimes when people get cranky, they just go, well, screw the universe. Just huff. Stomp on the sandcastle. Throw a rat out of the pram. Some people just throw a spanner in the works because it makes them feel better. It's just, well, I'm angry, so I'm going to make everyone else's life miserable too. It's just, people do that. I don't understand it, but people do it. So, you know, there's all this stuff out there. So at the end of the day, the reason not to use other people's code are inevitable mistakes, overconfidence, abandonment, and malice. Great. So you're darned if you do. And you're darned if you don't. Well, poop. So, of course, neither extreme is actually where you want to be. You need to be somewhere in between, right? You can't never use other people's code. And you can't always use everyone else's code without thinking about and it. And blindly trust it. And yeah. Never check on it. Exactly. So somewhere between those two extremes is sanity. Or, yeah, sanity is probably the best way. It's a sane way to go. So we got to develop skills and judgment. And we will get there by practice and we will get it wrong. And we should not feel bad about it as long as we learn from our mistakes. So if you use okay. a library and then it ends up all over ThinkGeek, not ThinkGeek, uh, bleeping computer <laughs> or, you know, the register or something. Well, OK, why, how did we end up using the wrong library? What can we learn? And just move on. right? It's, unless you're writing the code for a defibrillator, you're not going to kill anyone. So just live and learn and, you know, some experience. Great. But, you know, I'm going to try to help you to make fewer mistakes or maybe get the mistakes out of the way quicker. I don't know. So I would say there are actually two distinct questions you need to ask yourself. And then for each one, you need to dig a little deeper. So the first question is actually really basic. Do I use a library or do I write my own? 
That's actually a question you should ask first, right? Do, do I reuse or do I reinvent? And then if you choose to reuse, well, then you're going to look for choices and then you're going to have to evaluate those choices. So when you're looking at a potential solution, how do you actually tell if it's a good choice or a terrible choice? So the first question is actually, I would argue, quite simple. Ask yourself, first off, how well do I know the topic? So if the problem to be solved is, I just want to join strings in a nice way, well, I know about that. I'm a fan, I'm a fan of the Oxford comma, so I'm probably a bit more pedantic than the average human being. This is an area in my comfort zone. I do not have a knowledge problem. When the problem to be solved is, I need to write some JavaScript to populate an Excel spreadsheet, I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't a bloody clue. Right, so not my area of expertise. So how well do I know the topic? Very well or not at all. Pretty big deciding factor. How big of a job would this be to write my own? Five minutes? An afternoon? A year? Right? What ex- you know, how big of a job would this be to reinvent this wheel? And the other really important question is, how bad would it be if I messed it up? Uh, right? Okay. So if I'm right. writing some code which will automatically color code the output based on some sort of severity score, you know, happy things go green, angry things go red. If I mess it up and stuff goes purple, eh, <laughs> mildly disappointing. If I'm writing the script to process user logins, I should probably leverage other people's expertise in how to securely hash passwords so that I don't end up in have I been pwned. So how bad is it if I get this wrong is a really big factor, I would argue, especially when combined with how well do I know the topic? If the answer is I don't know what I'm doing and it will be really bad if I got this wrong, well, that's a really good reason to use other people's code. So just thinking about those three things and balancing those, I think should help you decide whether or not it's worth the second question of, okay, great, I am going to use someone else's code. Now, which code? So looking at another library, so I... You know, you Google it, and one of the solutions that comes back is library whatever. Okay, great. Pancakes. Pancakes. How do I judge? So the first thing I will always do is look at the documentation because a lot of people, not a lot, yeah, people don't write documentation. So if something has gotten to the maturity of being well-documented, the code was mature before the documentation was. So if the documentation is mature, the code is too. Oh, that's interesting. Right. I, I wouldn't have thought of that as a way to measure it, but right, right, right. Well, plus, if it's got good documentation, you have a chance of understanding what it's doing. That too, because that does also make it easier to reuse the code. It's kind of a double win there. If it's good documentation. Well, especially if, and especially if it's code for something that you don't fully understand grok. particularly well, which is why you decided to not roll it yourself. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. You're, yeah. It, it really is a win-win, right? If you come to a library and has good documentation, your life will be easier and you can be confident the code is at least mature. Like there is good code that is badly documented, but there's very little bad code that is well documented. <laughs> That's how I'm going to be a bad person. I'm going to go out and document really well just garbage code. <laughs> I think we just found a hole in, in, the, uh, in the whole process. Well, look, this, these are guidelines, right? <laughs> Rules it's of, really more of a guideline. Yes, exactly. Rules of thumb have trouble ways. You know, they're not perfect. 
The other thing I always look for is project reputation, right? You stick the thing Mm. into Google and you see what comes back. And if you get like 50 answers in Stack Overflow with lots of different people with high reputations in Stack Overflow recommending different aspects of the library, it's probably a good library. If you find a whole bunch of courses on how to use it on like the Khan Academy or that code site whose name I can't remember now. Code Academy, that's the one I meant anyway. Mm -hmm. Right, or, you know, paid tutorials on, you know, LinkedIn Learning or whatever. That's a pretty good sign that this is not a fly-by-night thing, right? If LinkedIn Learning has gone to the effort of paying someone to do a course to charge people for, there's some reputation going on Mm. there. So that's a useful thing. Uh, And the other thing I always look at is I go to their GitHub page and I look at the most recent commit. If the most recent commit is four years ago, I run away. (laughs) And I hope to see, you know, last commit, you know, days, weeks or months. That makes me probably okay. So, you know, is this thing being actively looked after? It doesn't have to be GitHub, right? It can just be the release notes. It gives us release notes that say February 2022, and it's now March 2022. It's like, yeah, okay, that's reasonable. If I look at the release notes and the most recent thing is April 2004, it's like, okay, run away. Maybe not. Exactly. Right. And then the other obvious thing is, is there a strong community built up around this project? You know, is it one is it one person who's very passionate writing some code? Or if I look on GitHub, are there 50 committers? I mean, how many people actually contributed to this? Yeah. So if there's a lot of uh, contributors, why now why does a lot of contributors tell you that this is probably a good one? Well, it makes it more likely to last because any one of those 50 people can get fed up in the morning and sod off and it's unlikely to take the whole project okay. down with it. But if it's one really passionate uh, yeah. person, as long as that really passionate person has the time and the energy, you're golden because they're one really passionate person. But I've been that really passionate person. I have abandoned many things. <laughs> right, And if I'm doing it open source to scratch my own itch, and if we happen to share an itch for a while, then for a while, that's great. But when I'm done, I'm done. Yeah. And now you're left here going, ah! <laughs> I've actually started to write that onto my own code. So I recently open sourced some stuff I was doing for work. I had a problem to be solved. It was really important I solve it. That it wasn't a good solution. I solved it. And I actually wrote front and center on the notes on the open source project. This code was written to solve a specific problem from a new university. It is not being actively maintained. We will not be adding features to help other people. If you have the skills to adapt this to your own needs, work away. That's why we gave it a liberal license. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. That's open and honest and people can take it. And if they find it useful, keep it going. Exactly. Exactly. And that is the joy of open source, right? Because the other thing is, of course, if if a project is just one passionate person and they set off, it can always be forked. Or they can hand it over and not even have to fork it. But, you know, it's a good point. A good community is definitely a good sign. A lack of community is not an instant bad sign. But hey, if there's a good community, then I'm more confident. It's certainly one of the things I would look at. So they're the four things I tend to look at. Um, And then I have some sort of more general advice. So the first thing is make your dependencies explicit because then you can get help with them. So if you use other people's code and you do that by copying and pasting entire files or chunks of files, maybe a function here, a class there, you just copy and paste it into your code. Then no package manager can have your back, right? No tooling can have your back. But if you explicitly say my code depends on this code then an automated tool 
can audit that in some way because it is written down in a computer understandable way. And so this all sounds a bit hand wavy. So the best example from the program myself series is the node package manager. When you use other people's code, you write it into your package.json. So your code says, I need is.js. I need, uh, what else have we been using? Uh, Moment.js. Right. So it's so let me back you up mm. a little bit, though. So we've started talking about writing modules, and we've been using npm in that context. But when we first used learned to use Moment.js, for example, we just put a script tag in our JavaScript that yeah. said, "Go, go get it from this this CDN." Correct, and that is exactly the kind of thing you would do as an amateur, and that you would stop doing when you grow up. So I need to go back into Time Shifter Clock and turn things into modules in order to be protected? Mm, no. You need to make a very subtle change where you replace your script tag with um, Webpack that we're going to learn about next time, and it's going to do it for you. So the script tag is going okay. to exist, but you're going to have NPM look after it for you. Okay. All right. So instead of you saying, here's my script tag, you're going to say, here's my dependency. And then Webpack is going to package it up for you and create the script tag. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's just basically what what we were doing, because we're building up our skills, right? We're going from someone who hacks away at stuff to becoming ever more proficient and moving up the levels here. And one of the things we're learning now is how to actually, you know, create, software, not just code, right? Software engineering as opposed to hacking together some code. Okay. So it's, you know, we're getting more formal. And yeah, you're right. We haven't been doing things that way. But that's because we're learning, right? We, that there is so much to learn here. So much to learn here. So this brings us straight into my second tip. So the whole reason that you want to be formal about your dependencies is so that you can use tools to help you. And it doesn't actually matter what system you're using, someone will have written the tools. Because the problems I've described today are not esoteric. They're very real and they affect everyone in every language writing code. So of course people have written tools because it's an itch we all share. So there are tools out there for whatever stack it is you're using, if you've formalized your dependencies, there are tools to help you. They will walk through your dependency graph and they will point at you and say, see that package over there? That one has a problem. You need to upgrade to version four. Or you see that thing over there? It's been completely abandoned. It's full of security holes. You need to replace it with something else. But, it, you know, the tool can help you. Oh, good. It's not a magic wand. And we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that in a moment. We we're are circle back to that. We right? are going to circle okay. back to that in the specifics of npm, because that's okay. where we're hanging out in programming myself. But before all of this, it's probably about time I told the story that you asked me about in the first place, because <laughs> we haven't actually addressed your question at all yet. So, right. a few at this stage, it's what a month or two ago. It, 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 it's, oh, it's this, not even a month. It's this it's year, easy. but it's not this week. Right. Anyway, there were there are two very commonly used JavaScript libraries called Colors and Faker. Colors is this really useful JavaScript API for doing colors on the terminal. So if you're writing JavaScript that outputs to the terminal and you enjoy things like, say, uh, in our recent use of the Jest testing framework, it gives us happy things in green and sad things in red, 
I promise you, under the hood is using color JS. Oh, okay. Right. All right. Faker is again for testing. If you need to test your code for what happens if I give it an address, well, you could give one main street forever, but that's not a very good test. What you actually want is random, realistic, fake data. And it actually takes effort to get good, fake data. Like to make sure you have like hyphenated city names and... Exactly. All those edge cases, right? Right. Okay. And credit card numbers that are garbage, but do pass a CC, that, that funny check that makes the last digit add up to a checksum. There's, a, there's all of these rules about, you know, dummy data that's not dumb. That's hmm. actually a real problem to be solved. And Faker.js is an entire library for making fake data. But it's actually really important for having good tests. So they're. I was going to say I would have stayed away from something called Faker, but <laughs> I guess the the name on the tin is exactly what you want it to be. Yeah, it does. It does depend on context, right? I want really good fake data. Ooh, Faker JS. <laughs> so right, and, and it is actually really good fake data. So there are two really popular packages that are used all over the place. The developer released all of that software as open source, and it was being used and is being used all over the place, completely legally, according to the license the developer chose to put it under. And one morning, the developer just got cranky and felt that there weren't enough people hitting the donate button and the whole world sucked and he basically sabotaged his own code. And it was uh, specifically, he was cranky at big companies that they were, you know, that the man was taking advantage of, of him in some way, you know, that they, uh, they weren't paying for all this hard work he was doing. Yeah. Even though he didn't charge for it and put it out under an open source license. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, there is a model for the world you'd like to live in. It's called proprietary software or commercial software. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. I, what if something happened in his life that just suddenly he realized he needed money badly? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a story no, there. A medical bill or something, yeah. But the bottom line is he got cranky one morning, like proper okay. cranky, and sabotaged his own code. He pushed changes to GitHub and to NPM where his packages, they had infinite loops in them and they printed garbage slash propaganda to the console if you tried to use them. So he sabotaged his own code. He wasn't malicious about it. He didn't steal people's passwords. He didn't steal people's money. Hypothetically, he could have been a lot more damaging than just basically throwing a rattle out of the pram, right? He stomped his heels a bit and went off in a huff, right? It's my ball and I'm going home. It's kind of what it boiled down to. But, you know, that was the thing that happened. Um, and his code was used in a lot of places, so there was the potential of exposure there. And... You know, that that happened, but it was a fairly big deal. And so because there were big packages and because those packages were used a lot, the problem was also fixed very quickly because GitHub suspended his account. NPM rolled back his updates to the, to the newest non-broken one. And the community responded by simply forking the code and, you know, setting off again using the unsabotaged version as version zero of the new reality. And so, so there, but there was there was a lot more to it. In when it hit, there were big companies like Amazon that had some catastrophic problems, and people had bricked applications as a result. According to the bleeping computer article you posted, only briefly, and only if they actually pro <laughs> proactively updated. Like the whole thing was over very quickly without 
without it causing real issue for people out there. Because the thing, one of the the thing that I don't, unless you are automatically taking the person's updates and putting them into your live code, automatically taking the new versions all the time. The chances of you being hit are very small. So I run it, but people were people. People's code was bricked because of what he did. Not maybe not everybody. Maybe it was a small well, percentage long way off of the everybody. people using it. Yeah, very long way well, off. Right, everybody. right, right. But if when you're used by millions of pieces of code, sure, it could still be a large number. But whatever it was, let's call it twenty-eight. <laughs> okay, code was was bricked. specific number. Twenty-eight. But okay. Right, twenty-eight pancake apps. And they had all this faker.js, and it was it was uh, it caused bricking of their other code. So, you said that the developers forked the code. Was it multiple people did forks? Uh, to be honest, I didn't even dig in that deeply. It was just uh, you know the bleeping computer article was that the community got together and had a fork going almost immediately. So if they had a fork going immediately, then I could see how maybe you could change your code to now point at that new fork. But how did the millions of, of pieces of code get updated to all say, okay, let's now go point at that new fork? Well, or if it was 10 forks, then how do you know which fork to go to? Well, in this case, because both GitHub and NPM, you know, did the undo because everything is in source control, they just rolled back time. And so you didn't actually have to change. But so that code is now frozen forever. That very it's never going to be developed again because that guy's account has has been locked out. Somehow his files are still available, but but he's locked out. Well, the the previous version of his libraries are still available, and the forks are available for you to change to. But right now, the second in time, your code isn't broken. So when you do an npm install at that moment in time, you're fetching the current copy of that code. Mm-hmm. Until you do an npm update, you're never fetching it again. Right, but I'm going to be a good little little developer here because I write software, not just hack together code, and I'm going to run npm update. Well, in this case, it'll just not update you because there's no right, updates. So that's to a go. bad thing to never get updates again. And I, I it's a bad thing if there's I a vulnerability found. I just see a lot of problems with this. So it's a, okay, but if there's a vulnerability found, then the npm auto tool we're going to talk about in a minute will tell you you need to go find something. Until there's a vulnerability found, there's no problem. It's just frozen. And then when there is a problem, NPM audit will tell you about it, and then you'll go deal with it. At which point in time, you'll go, oh, I see this project is dead. What are the alternatives? And I am almost certain that Stack Overflow will point you straight at them. So I just did a search for Faker and got 34,988 repo results in GitHub. How would you know which was the real one now? I'd probably start on Google. So let me do that right now. Faker.js. Faker.js.dev. So, data for testing. MIT license 2022. That's looking good. But there's lots of them. Well, there's only one called Faker.js.dev, which has given me a very active project. Um, but how do you know that .dev one is it? Well, it was the first hit Faker on Google. Dash. So it was the first hit on Google. My first hit on Google is faker-js slash faker. Um, so the actual underlying pro module is faker. Yeah, that's the same one. So we both arrived in the same place through different channels. I have no idea how you know that's the right one. Because it says installation, right npm install at faker-js slash faker. 
I don't know how you know that's the real one. How do you know that's the right one? There, there's 37,000 faker.js's. Well, I started in Google for a start. So the, the, the one with all the Google juice is going to get, get hit me up. That then takes me to a page which takes me to a very active GitHub. So at the very least, I have here a... Updated four days ago. Yeah, so I, I have here a plus, you know, the like I have here a repository that passes the smell test that has four and a half thousand stars. Um, so this might not be the only fork of that of that guy's sure. code. Absolutely, but this is but a this grand is one. Probably a good one. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't really care if I hadn't if I have the best, as long as I have one that works and that isn't abandoned. I'm happy. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out how the whole internet turned and pivoted to more than one different version of the same code overnight. Well, they probably didn't, right? They're probably mostly using the old one. They're probably mostly using the old and one. Maybe which don't have even any know. vulnerabilities in it. So at the moment, that's perfectly fine until there is a vulnerability, at which point in time the community will have to respond. But until there is a vulnerability, it's not. An issue. One of the things I worried about with this was um, that since big companies did get hit with this, that there would be some feeling that, see, I told you open source was bad. We shouldn't be using it. Well, kind of the opposite happens because you just look at it and go, oh, look, the, the community has rooted around the damage because it's open. Yeah, but that's not what was in the news. Right. True, but the bigger the company, the less likely the the, the the fact that the news is going to... If you're a large company already using open source, you're probably not depending on the whims of the news to decide whether or not to continue using open source. You've probably arrived there through an informed decision-making process where you've carefully weighed the pros and cons. You haven't worked in big companies, have you, Bart? <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> it's at least aspirationally true. One can hope. I fought the please let us use open source code battle for years and was, you know, well, that's terrible. It can't be any good if it's free. That's got to be insecure. That's what our IT security people said. I would like to think that all these years later that if you were to be a fly on the wall in that meeting room, you'd hear different things now. But I may be being wildly optimistic. (laughs) Okay. Well, that, that's interesting that that corrected so quickly. That's good. Yeah. So the, my takeaway really for, from all of that is, you know, the, the community does actually root around damage pretty well. Um, so it, it could have been a calamity and a catastrophe, but it kind of wasn't. So that's kind of a good thing. Good. So we should use other people's code intelligently. We should use as much as we need, but no more. And we should choose the code we use carefully. It's my summary of everything I've just been saying. (laughs) Two sentences there. Okay. Uh, And I just want to end by getting very practical. So in the Programming by Stealth series proper, we're using NPM for our dependencies, which means that we're writing our dependencies into our package.json file. So it literally knows everything we're using. So Mm -hmm. if the NPM people had a list of all the known vulnerabilities, they could check our package.json for us. And they do. So they can. There's literally oh. an audit command built into NPM. NPM space audit 
will scan through your package.json, look at all of your dependencies, look at all of the dependencies of your dependencies, look at all of the dependencies of the dependencies of the dependencies. It goes all the way down. It is dependencies all the way down. All the way down until it runs out of dependencies and it checks them all and it will report back to you and basically tell you what the state of play is. And the audit is looking for security updates or any kind of update? Uh, known vulnerabilities. Known vulnerabilities. So if stuff can be out of date, but not about them? dangerous. So sometimes it can fix them automatically for you, right? So imagine that you use a library that uses a library that has a problem. And the mm-hmm. library that has a problem has been fixed, but the library you use hasn't fixed its link. Okay. Then NPM Audit can simply go in and say, yeah, let's tell this dependency, tell your copy of the dependency to use the newer version of its dependency. Oh, oh, wow. Because your package-lock okay. specifies all the versions all the way down. So oh, you right, can right, change right. your package-lock without the master project changes their package.json. Oh, and so NPM cool. Audit will reach in and just do that for you. If it can. Okay, so NPM audit doesn't just tell you what's wrong. It actually do, it suggests, do you want me to do X, Y, Z? Yes, there are things it can okay. auto-fix, and there are things it won't do automatically. So if, you, if there is a possible fix, but the package.json says don't use versions above version 1 and the fix is in version 2, then mm-hmm. NPM audit won't do it for you. Okay. Okay, so it's smart enough to know if you've got rules set up. Exactly. And so at that point in time, you need to make a decision as a person. Now, personally, I tend to look at vulnerabilities very differently depending on whether they're dev dependencies or real dependencies. And the other thing is I will actually look. So I have a couple of dev dependencies that are particularly on older code that's still using QUnit. And it has some vulnerabilities in the dev dependencies. And I'm choosing to live with that because it's just in the dev dependencies and the vulnerabilities themselves are not, I've read the vulnerabilities, they're not catastrophic, they're not the kind of thing that I would lose sleep over, so I'm happy to live with it. I've forgotten what a dev dev dependency is. So a dev dependency is a dependency in the tools you need to turn your code into the finished product, but it's not in the finished product. Ah, right, right, right. Okay. So basically your hammer is a bit wonky, but the thing you made is fine. Okay. So as long as you know that if you hit the hammer the wrong way, it could spring off and bop you on the head, you know, forewarned is forearmed. Right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching my analogy a bit here, but you get the idea, right? <laughs> I'll take it. So you have NPM audit is right there for you. And then the other thing that's built in, so GitHub actually has a robot, a, well, a bot, a software bot called <laughs> Dependabot that you can turn on and it will look through your dependencies and it will actually write the changes to your package.json and give them to you as pull requests. It will actually just update the code for you and say, merge this into your master, or sorry, into your main branch, and you're good. And it will send you a little email. I just want to say Dependabot a lot. I know, I love (laughs) Dependabot. Those tools just exist for us within the tool chain that we've chosen to use. And so really, that's why it's very important that you do your dependencies explicitly instead of implicitly, because then these tools can have your back. How often do you run NPM Audit and Dependabot? Well, the great thing, so NPM Audit will run automatically every time you do updates to packages. But that would mean that it would only happen when you change packages. Dependabot just runs. Okay. So you don't run Dependabot. And they're checking for the same kind of things? They are actually, to be honest. Yeah, so Dependabot is basically using NPM Audit for you on a schedule. 
Whereas NPM audit will run whenever you give it a chance. So if you say NPM oh, update, okay. NPM will use that as an excuse to audit. If you do an NPM install, okay. it will use that as an excuse to audit. Like, if you just run NPM, it will go and audit stuff. It's just like waiting for an excuse. But it can't run <laughs> itself, right? So if you don't touch it, it won't happen. Whereas Dependabot runs in the, is a scheduled task in GitHub. So if you do nothing, Dependabot is laboriously checking. Nope, still good. Nope, still good. Every day, check, check, check. That's why it's a robot. So the two together are a great mix because NPM audit alone requires you to remember to do something. Nah, not going to happen. Whereas Dependabot will just do it for you. Right, so that's that why that sounded flawed. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you're gonna have to reuse code. So just do it carefully. Ask yourselves questions. Do it in a considered way. Don't just fly at it. And everything apart from the depend about and the npm audit is actually generic advice. So yeah. when we move into PHP land, we're going to be moving away from npm and into something called packagist which is the NPM equivalent for PHP. And yeah, the names of things will change, but the concepts won't. We're still going to be looking through a library, checking if it has an active community, all the same stuff. We're just going to be doing it in a different web interface. It's more orange, whereas NPM is more red, but really kind of (laughs) the same. And if we were doing it in Java, we'd be looking in Maven. It's the same applies. Perl would be in CPAN. Yeah. So... You know, it's it's a very philosophical, which is why it's not part of the main series, but um, I'm hoping it was at least a helpful little way of looking at the world. Yeah, I enjoyed this. This was this was definitely pretty interesting. I, I didn't know that any of these tools existed for sure, and I hadn't thought about how to, uh, how to think about this. I hadn't thought about how to think about it. <laughs> there you go. That's very meta, but I approve entirely, because <laughs> that is literally the point. It's thinking about thinking. All right. Very cool. This was, this was fun, Bart. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Well... Actually, I'm not sure which ending is most appropriate here because you definitely should do the whole happy computing thing. But you know something? I think stay patched. Keep your dependencies patched so you stay secure is probably the right end note here, isn't it? (laughs) We'll take it. Okay. Anyway, happy computing too. If you learn as much from Bart each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.